Welcome to The Youth Voice, a podcast giving young people a voice in politics across the island of Ireland. Today I'm joined by Ulster Unionist MLA for Strangford, Mike Nesbitt. So, Mike, I suppose we'll get straight in. You're a former broadcaster, former journalist, so I suppose it makes sense that you're the man spearheading the whole libel laws and your libel laws legislation. So could you maybe explain to us what your legislation would actually mean for journalists, what it does, and just kind mm. of what, what we can expect from it? Well, it's not just for, for journalists, Dermot. And, and, and of course, it's the fact that I was a, a broadcast journalist that got me interested in this area. Uh, but it, it's, it's broader than that. So, I mean, basically, it, it's about a balance between freedom of expression and your right to protect your own reputation from uh, inaccurate or malicious uh, comment. And it, it is a balance, so it's two rights. It's all about rights. And, and when you discuss rights, almost inevitably, you're talking about competing rights that, that generate a sort of tension. So if you look at, at, at the laws of defamation in Northern Ireland, they predate the internet. And that's where reputations are trashed every, not just every minute, probably every second of every minute of, of every day. So uh, I, I thought there was a prima facie uh, argument to at least review, have a deep dive review of our laws of defamation, uh, which England did, England and Wales did um, about 10 years ago, which resulted in the Defamation Act of 2013, but that only applies in England and Wales. Uh, and, and I was very cross that Sammy Wilson, who was the minister responsible here, uh, didn't bother even consulting his executive colleagues at the time. He seemed to make a decision off his own bat. We don't need to do anything. We'll just let the laws as they stand here stand. So I've, I've been at it for 10 years um, and frustrated by things like Simon Hamilton, when he was minister, he, he commissioned the Law Commission to look at the, That knocked me out from doing a private member's bill. Uh, then, of course, with the three years when Stormont wasn't, wasn't sitting. So I brought it forward to modernise our laws, to rebalance between freedom of expression and the protection uh, of, of, of reputations. It's, it's important for journalists for, for this reason. If we were in London or Dublin, neighbouring jurisdictions, uh, our government would be scrutinised in three different ways. You would have an official opposition uh, in, in the chamber, you would have a second revising chamber, be it the Shannon in Dublin or the House of Lords in London, and you'd have the media. Here, you've only got the media. So the role of the media in scrutinising the Northern Ireland executive is even more important than the role of the media scrutinising Boris Johnson or Micheál Martin. But beyond that, uh, look at academic work. If you were an academic scientist uh, and you decided that there was a drug being made by one of the global pharmas, uh, that perhaps was, was not good for, for example, pregnant women. Uh, the, the pharmaceutical company has got huge power, money, resource, uh, and, and they may decide, we don't want you saying that because that's going to damage our business. So the thing is, if you're in England or Wales under the 2013 Act, if your opinion is peer-reviewed, you've got privilege you can print that, you can talk about it on radio and TV. So if you're at an English university, you've got all these privileges. If you're at Ulster University or at Queen's, you don't. Uh, and there's probably a chilling impact in terms of academics thinking of getting a new job, saying, well, I don't want to go to Northern Ireland. 
because I want to talk about scientific and medical issues and I don't have the same protections that I'm going to get if I stay here in England uh, and Wales. So there's a whole kind of basket uh, of implications that, that I'm trying to deal with. So I suppose it is. it could be a revolutionary piece of legislation particularly for academics, for journalists, for kind of even the, the general public, really. It could completely revolutionise how we see journalism, I suppose. Well, I, I think it's just going to make journalism easier. You see, you can, you can go and look at the number of defamation cases that come before the High Court, and the number is very low. But that's not the right statistic to be looking at, and the right statistic doesn't exist. And that is, how often has a, a media lawyer sent a letter or picked up the phone to a broadcaster, a media outlet, a newspaper, and said, if you publish what you're intending to publish, we're going to sue you. So that's what we call the chilling factor. And of course, nobody knows how many of those letters and phone calls are being made on an annual basis, but we know they are being, being made. Uh, and and we, we hear increasingly from journalists that it's the DUP and Sinn Féin the two parties who run our five-party coalition out of Stormont Castle, who are the quickest uh, to apply the chill factor. So we really have to address that uh, and open up scrutiny. And I suppose actually on the kind of, on the actual legislation, what stage is it at and what, you know, what are the parties kind of saying, you know, what's the response we're seeing within kind of the actual, you know, political chambers? Well, it's just passed what's called its second stage, which is the first time it's actually debated in the chamber. Uh, and now it goes into committee, and that will be the committee uh, for finance. I have no idea why it isn't the committee for justice, but it's under finance. Uh, so they uh, are next week going to ask for an extension uh, to the amount of time they can take to scrutinize it. Uh, and what I've done uh, as an analogy is say, think of a, of a house built out of Lego bricks. What they're going to do is they're going to take it apart brick by brick, examine every part, and then they're going to re recommend putting it back together, but maybe not in the shape it is at the moment. When that's done, it goes back into the chamber, and that's when you can start putting in amendments. Uh, when it goes through that process, uh, then you wait a couple of weeks, and then you have what's called the final consideration stage. So there's committee scrutiny over a period of weeks, and then potentially two more debates in the chamber. My concern is time's very tight, and because both the DUP and Sinn Féin have expressed some reservations about the bill, uh, it is really quite easy to just run the clock down in committee. So they might say, for example, well, let's hear from the Lady Chief Justice. And she might come back, her office might say, well, she's not available for six weeks. So then you wait six weeks and you hear from the Lady Chief Justice, and then she may say something which will encourage a DUP or a Sinn Féin member to say, oh, well, that's interesting. I think we should uh, speak to Lord Justice Gillen about that. And Lord Justice Gillen's people say, well, he's not available for four weeks. And next thing, the mandate's over and you're in election mode and the bill falls. That's so, my concern. So I suppose that's the problem with having, you know, such a kind of two-party system, I suppose. Um, but I, I suppose moving on from that, it is obviously... We're, your party's just off off the conference. The whole of focus this time around seems to be the union of people, the idea of bringing together communities, and I suppose just bringing them together in support of the union. And I suppose we've heard from on the show, we've heard from people on nationalism, 
political nationalism and senior figures within Sinn Féin and the SDLP about what a united Ireland means to them. But I suppose, what does the union mean to you? And why should kind of what what why should people, especially young people, or kind of who are our target kind of audience, why should young people especially be kind of in support of the union? Because I, I think it gives us our best shot to create a society that is truly fair, peaceful, and prosperous. And I think that's what people want. And when I say prosperous, by the way, I interpret that quite broadly. It's not just about your bank account, although I do accept, you know, the amount of money you have in your back pocket on a Friday when you're finishing work, if you're if you're in work, is really important. But prosperity is also about feeling good inside yourself. It includes your sense of good mental health and well-being. So, you know, the, the more people who are earning good money, having their children well educated, enjoying uh, a standard of living and a quality of life that they really like, then the less chance there is that people are going to say, I want change. They're going to say, give me more of the same. Uh, and, and I think the opportunity for that is greater within the United Kingdom than in anything that would represent a constitutional change. So that's why I believe in the union. But it's not about waving a union flag in somebody's face or wrapping yourself in a flag to go down the corner shop uh, for your half litre of milk in the morning. It's about saying this is a fair and equitable society that we have created. And again, that's not to say there aren't obstacles in your life, because we always have obstacles in our lives. But it is about saying the hurdles you have to jump to, to get to where you want to be are no higher than the next person's. So that, that's why I think uh, we, we, we're better off in, in the, the UK. You know, it's, it's a big economy. Uh, it's a pluralist society. It's come a long, long way, as indeed the Republic has in the last number of years uh, and, and decades. But I think it, it is possible within the United Kingdom for, for everybody to feel at home uh, that they are being respected, that they'll be treated fairly, and that they've got a new good opportunity at a rewarding life. And I suppose on top of that, from speaking to other politicians within both unionism, nationalism, and the kind of the other designation, there seems to be a large kind of consensus, I suppose, that a border poll is on the table. You know, in you know, there seems to be a lot of talk of it. The conversation, I suppose, seems to have started around, particularly in kind of civic nationalism as well as. You know, the political aspects. So do you see a border poll, border poll coming anytime soon? I'm not sure when it's going to come, but I'm sure it's going to come. Uh, and I don't think unionists uh, should fear it. Uh, but but you're, you're taking me to what I call my four ironies. And, and the first irony is that for people of, of my age and my background, the biggest obstacle to border polls and constitutional change was the IRA, because they're bombs and bullets. Uh, were an attempt to coerce me into something that I didn't want. Now, I also accept that, that people from different backgrounds living in different areas, like Republican areas, will have a very different narrative and, and will be more uh, swift to, to point to the, the rule of the army or the RUC. But I'm saying from my background, the first irony is the IRA who wanted to create a united Ireland were the biggest obstacle to achieving it. The second irony is that the organisation that has done most to put the constitutional question back on the table is the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Because in 98, in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, we basically put the constitutional question to one side. And it was Brexit in 2016, that referendum. Let's put it back on the table and into debate. The, the third irony is that 
you know, one of the people who's probably doing most to put the brake on any push for a uh, for a border poll is the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, because he understands nobody's ready. Nobody is ready uh, for constitutional change. And then the fourth irony is that unionists have spent centuries looking over our shoulder at Irish nationalists as the big threat. And now Irish nationalists barely make the podium. Third place behind Scottish nationalism and English nationalism. And English nationalism is the real, to my mind, the real threat to the union. And you know what, what they did and what a lot of nationalists here think they did in 2016 was vote for Brexit coming in over your heads and saying, I'm going to deny you your sense of Europeanness. And you know, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement says we all self-define our identity. You, know, you can be British, you can be Irish, you can be both, and there's no hierarchy. I would go a bit further because I think I'm, I'm Northern Irish, Irish, British and European. Uh, and, and this is a thing that John Hewitt, the, the late Ulster poet, used to talk about. And he warned that you know if you deny any part of that mix, you diminish who I am. And that's what Brexit has done for a lot of people, that they feel diminished in terms of their identity. So a nationalist living here might say, well, I'm Irish and European, just the same as everybody on the other side of the border. So there's, there's the link that binds us together. But Brexit has broken, broken that link. Uh, and people who previously were not activists for constitutional change I think are more likely to be to be activists, to be working towards bringing about a border poll. But will a border poll uh, end up in a vote for change? If there was one next week, I'm not sure. I, I don't think the people of Northern Ireland will, will vote for change. And if there was one in the Republic of Ireland, I'm not sure they'll vote for change either. I think there's a difference between aspiring to United Ireland and voting for it if you're presented with the, the real facts and figures of, of what, what it means to bring about constitutional change. But it's a perfectly valid political aspiration. Uh, and, and of course, it's not for me to argue for constitutional change. Uh, it's for nationalists to, to persuade me, just as it's my job to persuade nationalists that they're better off in the UK. And that's back to earning good money and having your children well educated. I suppose one of the last things I want to touch on was a big kind of something it was something big to come out of the UUP conference was the idea of mandatory co coalition being scrapped now that has been kind of on and off the table over the last few years obviously with the UUP coming out in support of scrapping alliance towards the start of last year came out in support of scrapping it as well so it is you know and the DUP have obviously always been of that position and as have the TUV SDLP and Sinn Féin have been a lot more reluctant, more in opposition. And I know I spoke to Nick Mullen about this, but what does, you know, what does that look like? I suppose in your right, and obviously we can't, you know, get all of the massive kind of amounts of whether or not we scrapped a hunt and all of that. But especially with how things would look in the current assembly, whereas it would just be if Sinn Féin wanted to lead an executive, they would have to bring everybody by the DUP. And I can't see Jim Hollister going in with the TUV, and it would be the same with the DUP, they'd have to bring in everyone except Sinn Féin. So what would that kind of look like in terms of, we'd also have to protect all of the cross-community interests. So very, very briefly, what would what does scrap and mandatory coalition actually kind of mean? 
Well, it, it doesn't mean a return to majoritarianism. That's that's the most important thing to say. So I think what Doug is saying is that, that the current uh, way that, that the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is being applied, is being run by the DUP and Sinn Féin, who've been doing it for 14 years, 14 years ago, that's when they went into the castle, isn't working to deliver for the people. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're nationalist or unionist. It's really not delivering the way it should. So let's try something different where you would so still have a cross-community government based in the castle. So there would be a unionist and a nationalist party in there. But then you might have an official opposition. Now, I, I brought us out in 2015. That was a big, big thing. That was the first time in, in, in the history of Northern Ireland when there's been a government at Stormont, but the Ulster Unionist Party haven't been part of it. But I brought us out partly in protest to the fact that, that the IRA had just murdered two people in broad daylight in the streets of Belfast. And some of their operatives were running around Stormont with Sinn Féin lanyards and Sinn Féin passes to get access all areas of parliament buildings. Something you, you couldn't imagine that happening in Leinster House and Dáil Éireann. And then in 2016, of course, uh, Colm Eastwood and I formed the first official opposition uh, since since 1998. And some people say, oh, did it, did it work? It worked too well. It worked too well. We came out 2016 after that election, right off the summer recess. We left Sinn Féin and the DUP eyeballing each other uh, across that big round executive table. It, it only lasted about three months. And, and then the whole thing collapsed. It worked too well. They like to blame the smaller parties. They like to raid the budgets of the smaller parties, uh, ministerial departments. So I, I think Doug is on the same kind of theme. I brought us out partly because I wanted to say, these institutions are here to stay. They're solid enough. Let's take the next step towards what a normal democracy looks like. And in a normal democracy, you have a government, you have an opposition. And after the mandate, when you're going to the next election, the electorate are saying to themselves, do I like what I got for the last five years? In which case, do I want to give the government another go? Or do I really think there might be better from somebody else? In which case, I'm going to give the opposition a go in the castle. So I suppose that actually is a large part of it is about making politics better. Because yes. it has been shown it doesn't really work a lot of the time. While we have made immense progress since 98, a lot of it isn't working. And it was something, It was interestingly, the DUP, while appearing, you know, obviously are part of the, the duopoly, it was Gregory Campbell actually had originally put that idea to me, the idea that it would improve our politics. So I suppose, you know, is, are we at that right time? Because I know there's been a lot of, you know, one of the big things that have come across is whenever I, I wrote an article on the issue was, are, is it, are we ready? You know, is Northern Ireland ready for the next step into, I suppose, normal politics? Well, I'm, I'm a great fan of a, of a quote by a Russian uh, author called Ivan Turgenev, Dermot. And he said, if we wait for the moment when everything, absolutely everything is ready, we shall never begin. So there isn't going to be a perfect time uh, to do this, uh, but there might be a good time and this may be it. Uh, we, we've seen uh, what we've called a bit of a surge for the Alliance Party in the last couple of years. We've got what what journalists are calling the BD bounce at the moment. Um, but will it translate into assembly elections? I know in my time as leader, did well at, at local government, council level elections. 
retained her European seat easily, got back into the House of Commons with two MPs. That was a really big win in 2015. So we were on a real momentum going into the 2016 Assembly election. So we just hit a brick wall because it's at the Assembly election that the DUP knock doors and say, if you don't fool for us, you're going to get Sinn Féin as a First Minister. And that, for the last 14 years, has been an incredibly powerful tool for them. Now, I do think it's going to bite them in the backside, um, but we have to wait and see uh, what happens next May or whenever the, the election comes. Absolutely. I suppose I think that's a natural time to wrap up. Okay. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Uh, it's been a brilliant interview. And to everyone listening, as always, uh, thank you for listening. You can read our articles or even write articles or get in contact with us. Uh, so you can read our articles at www.youthvoiceni.com. You can catch us on Twitter at youthvoiceni and catch us on Instagram at youthvoice underscore ni. I've been Dermot Hamill and I'll see you all next time.